0: Welcome back to the Savage Land. It's another special day here. I am Jason. I'm Rachel. I'm Matt. And uh, today we've got another creator interview. Uh, The guest who's joining us today is a name you've probably heard mentioned on the show quite a few times as he played an integral part in the careers of previous guests Zach Kaplan, Jeremy Hahn and Brian Hill. Uh, he's the writer of Think Tank, The Tithe, Golgotha, Postal, Samaritan, and tons more. He's also the COO of Top Cow Productions. He is Matt Hawkins. Welcome to the show, Matt. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so, you, you've you got kind of an interesting uh, story as to how you came to be in comics. And, I mean, obviously, you know, everybody's story is a little different in how they broke in. But I don't think I've ever heard one with uh, as much... Serendipity and cojones really as uh, as yours involves, but tell us how you got <laughs> started in uh, in comics.
1: Oh wow! Um, well, you know, often when I tell the story, it, it annoys certain people because most of the people that want to be in comics are like lifelong fans, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, I didn't read comics. Um, I was uh, at UCLA. I was working on my master's degree, and uh, my nephew, who's thirteen years younger than me called me up and asked if I could take him to this signing at Mile High Comics with this new comic store that was opening in Anaheim, California. And this is uh, April of 93. And uh, I said, sure. So we went down to the signing and took him down there. And I didn't know we'd be waiting in a three-hour fucking line, you know. I mean, it was uh, (laughs) Rob Liefeld and the Extreme Studios early tour. Yeah. And uh, so – I got there right when it said it was going to start. Of course, when I was at the very end of the line and, uh, the two guys right in front of me were wannabe comic creators. One was Jonathan Sabal, who's a very well-known mm. anchor in comics today, works for DC comics. Yeah. Uh, he had his portfolio and this is where serendipity is kind of interesting. You talk about opportunity and chance and happenstance, whatever you want to call it. But, mm. uh, so, for three hours, I'm waiting in this fucking line, right? And uh, John is telling, and she's so excited about comics, and he was talking about it. And for the first hour, I didn't really talk to anyone, but then I just kept hearing them talk about it. And then I kind of asked a question or two, and my nephew was talking to him. And uh, so, you know, by the time I got to the front of the line, uh, these, you know, I, I sort of felt like I knew what Image Comics was. I knew who some of these people were. I'd seen the Levi's 501 Blues commercial that <laughs> Rob Liefeld was on. The
2: so legendary. I kind of
1: knew at least. Yeah. So I knew this guy was on TV. He was a little bit famous and he obviously had people willing to wait for three hours in the line to see him and get his autograph. And so I get up front of this line and uh, I was working in retail banking. And if you've ever worked in retail banking, it sucks. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was paying my way through school. You know, I was in the lab 40 hours a week. I was in class 20, 30 hours a week. I was teaching a class, the undergrad class. Man, I was was also working 30 hours a week. So I had zero social life (laughs) whatsoever. I mean, I was driving around and doing shit and uh yeah. these guys just looked like they were having so much fun when i got to the front of the line here were these eight or nine dudes they were young they were all wearing black leather extreme studios jackets they were laughing <laughs> kick, cutting it up with each other and there were cute chicks there with them and i'm like god damn this is fucking cool you know mm-hmm. and uh so I, and as john sabal gets up to rob shows him his portfolio and Rob hired him on the spot and uh, literally John went around the table and started introducing himself to all the people in, in line at, at extreme
2: That's and these
1: are people like Eric Stevenson Dan Frega, Marat Michaels uh, wow. you know this is, you know Eric Stevenson was had only worked at extreme for about a month when I was hired so we sort of came in at the same time yeah and uh, no so I was the next guy in line. Wow. And it was just really, really weird. And I was I was if this had not happened, this is not something I ever would have thought of. I just <laughs> didn't like my job. And so i I was face to face with Rob, and I said, "Hey, uh, I can't draw, but are you looking for anyone to do anything else?" And he's like, "Well, we need people to do letters pages and and uh, you know write press releases. Can you do that?" And I'm like, yes." I had no idea how to do. That. I I I, was a <laughs> I had a, a BS in physics. I was in the master's program for applied science, emphasis physics, and I was working on uh, fiber optics at the time. You know, those those are the kind of things I was I was dealing with. Fiber optics was the big thing in ninety three, ninety four. Yeah, well, you know um, what they
0: say, like fiber optics and press releases—they're kind of cut from the same <laughs> cloth.
1: <laughs> no, so no, dude. I went I went to a, a Borders. I think it was bought a book called. Literally, how to write a press release. I still have it. Um, I, went, I went home, typed up a, uh, a letter, a, a press release on, on, on their signing they did at Mahai. I faxed it to those guys the next day. Uh, Rob called me said, hey, can you come down to lunch tomorrow? Hey, can you come down and meet us over lunch tomorrow? Not have lunch, but come down at lunchtime. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, because yeah, I had a full-time job. you know. So I went there on my lunch shift. Uh-huh. And uh, it was just really weird because I was working at a bank. You wear a suit to a bank, you know, (laughs) when you're working retail bank, you're wearing a suit. So I'm showing up into Anaheim, these guys office, they have the ninth floor of the Disney building there. And, uh, they're all in shorts and tank tops and shit. And, uh, I was in this suit. I felt like such a, you know, just a a ridiculously out of place person. And, uh, (laughs) About two hours later, they kind of left me in the lobby, and I almost left multiple times because uh, I had a job. I was on my lunch break, yeah. you know what I mean. And, uh, I made I made a decent amount of money there. It wasn't a lot, but it was it was good for what I was doing at that time. Of course. And then uh, Rob pulls me in and says, "Hey, uh, you know, we've decided to hire you." And I'm like, w- w- what? "You know, this in my head, I'm like, wait, what? I was expecting <laughs> to be in, 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 interviewed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah." And, uh, yeah, and, and I was not interviewed. He said, yeah, we've decided to hire you. How much would you like to make? And uh, <laughs> I just, you know, I'd been through the, the uh, UCLA uh, recruitment program. I, I, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd actually done an internship at Raytheon. I, I was looking to go into the military industrial complex. is really what I was going to do with my life. Wow. And so I'd been through security clearance and some of these things. So I, I was not used to this kind of sort of uh, uh, just, what, what do you want to call it, Loose, loosely run things, you know? I yeah. Mean, and so – I was just shocked, and I just kind of looked at it for a second, kind of just mesmerized in disbelief. And I'm like, "All right, I make thirty thousand a year working at the bank. You know, that's that's shitty, but it's it's all right. Let me let me tell him I make fifty and see if he'll match it. You know." <laughs> so I said, uh, "Oh yeah, I make fifty thousand at my current job. Could you could you match that?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, no problem." And so you know, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, "Fuck, you know, I could ask for ten times. That. I literally yeah, totally. could have asked for three to four times that and he would have paid it because he was a problem. Deploy- album- I
0: mean, this is at the height of like Rob Liefeld just making tons of money, right?"
1: Oh, he made uh, that year he made twenty million dollars. Holy shit. Oh
2: my god.
1: No, I know because I did his books for a while. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he uh, no, because there was a point when these guys realized, so uh, you're a physics guy, right? So you know math, so you can do accounting. And so I'm like, <laughs> Oh, no, I don't that's not the same thing, but it was easy for me to figure out. So anyway. But yeah, that's how I got in the business. That's and funny. uh I worked in marketing and promotions and editorial. Uh, I, I, the first sort of editorial creative stuff I ever did was Rob had a separate line called Maximum Press, which was uh, Evangeline, Battlestar Galactica, and a few other titles. And I was the editor and, and ran that line of books. And uh, that was there was a woman named Kathy Christian who was the Vampirella model that we stole to be the Evangeline model. <laughs> and we launched a new title around her. I think that was 95. It was a big deal back then. I mean, I actually, yeah. if you go back the charge I think eventually number one was like number six
0: yeah that one I mean and that's in, in the industry yeah that that was a, a big title and I think isn't it like being optioned for a, a film at this point now or like they're developing one right now
1: no clue uh, I could be I mean uh you know I, I look at stuff like that and I'm like we've optioned the darkness as a film 10 times there's still no darkness so <laughs> you know So it's that's, like, fair. that's where you know, development and options uh are, are really kind of meaningless until yeah. you kind of see uh, people talking about shooting locations and actors that are cast into roles and, and you know that's when stuff gets it's real you know yeah, yeah. and even then sometimes that stuff doesn't happen but, yeah of uh, course i've i've really stopped talking about development because i think we've sold 50 options in the time i've been there you wow. know, we've had what four or five four or five things made so yeah. is that, one in five one in ten you know so it's not a high percentage
0: yeah of course uh so how did you how did you make the jump from extreme Studios to obviously I mean now you're c o o of of Top Cow. What was that trajectory like
1: well in ninety five or ninety six I don't remember exactly what it was uh, Extreme Studios actually uh, went out of business, yeah, and uh, Rob shut the studio down and uh, but he launched out of that a new company called Awesome Comics, which I was part of, and that was Rob and Jeff Loeb and Alan Moore and Steve Scross and uh, Ian Churchill and Eric Stevenson and myself and uh we did, you know, Youngblood that Alan Moore wrote. We did a war child book that Alan Moore wrote. We did uh coven that was Jeff Lobany and Ian Churchill. We did a number of books that did really, really well. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but that company was VC funded and, uh, was spending too much money. And so it, it, uh, the VC people after a year shut it down. Ooh. And, uh, so Rob shut it down, uh, and kind of went off and did his own thing. And then, uh, I, he he was going to keep going and do some things, but I, I had been through, Rob and I are in good terms now, and we get along very, very well, but back then, I, I had just been through two sort of emotionally crushing company going down, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, twice, twice yeah. in two years, and so I just, uh, I was like, you know what, I, I, I'm i going to do something else, so I, I actually started initially and thought, I'm going to go back into uh, science, you know, and I'm going to go look around, and then I, I kind of realized that uh, I'd been out of that for four years, and four years in that world is a lifetime, yeah. and uh and so I realized that all the people that I had were peers of mine, I'd be working for them and I didn't like that idea. So, um, I, I know it sounds arrogant, but it was, it was just how I felt, you know, these the no, guys totally. that I was drinking beers with and suddenly they're going to be my bosses. I was like, fuck that. And, uh, so I, I, launched a book called Lady Pendragon. Um, I was friends with Larry Marder, who was the publisher at Image Comics at the time. And, yeah. uh, I, I did it and, uh, you know. The first book sold an insane number of copies, and I was shocked. And then uh, I proceeded to do 18 issues over a couple of years. Um, mm-hmm. And then in the second year of doing Lady Pendragon, I did another book called Alley Cat and another book called, book called Blue. Uh, that's all 97, 98. And in like uh, March, April of 98, I just got a call from TopCow Cow saying, uh, hey, we need somebody to come run our comic division. Will you do it? And <laughs> uh, so I went and met with them. Um, I knew Mike Turner pretty well. I knew Dave Finch and Benitez and all those guys. Yeah. you know, when you were, here's the sort of the thing, Top Cow was always the artistic elite of Image. You Uh know, there was, uh, at that time, and Extreme was sort of the redheaded stepchild. We were kind of the arrogant, (laughs) brash, you know, group. Yeah. Um, And we we had some hits and stuff like that, but we weren't as well respected. So the idea of going to the more respected studio uh, appealed to me. And Mm -hmm. I also was in the process of of getting married. So I thought the idea of actually having real health care and benefits and shit like that uh, appealed to me. So... (laughs) I, I took the job, and uh, what I didn't realize was that uh, Top Cow was going through a massive metamorphosis, and uh, all the business people that hired me in at Top Cow at that time all left, um, oh, wow. and then Mike Turner, Fence, Turner, Benitez all left as well within about a year, year and a half, two years, so um, it, was, uh, it was weird. It was a weird transition, but we sort of worked through it, you know. Yeah. and uh, you know, I've been there for 19 years now with, with Sylvester, so he and I have uh, been working together a long time. Wow.
0: That's I didn't even, I didn't even realize it had been that long. 19 years. That's, that's pretty amazing.
1: Uh, yeah, it's 98 dude. That's 19 years ago. <laughs> so. <nuts. laughs> Just, uh, remind me. I feel fucking old. Every time I think about that, I'm like, God, I, I was doing comics 25 years ago. That's weird. <laughs> this is my, this year, this, uh, I, I actually graduated from high school, uh, 30 years ago and from two weeks from now.
0: Hey, happy, happy 30th anniversary.
1: <laughs> I know. You know, I don't feel old, man. You know, I got two teenage sons and my wife's much younger than me, but, uh, I still I still look okay for my age, I suppose. Yeah, man. No, I
0: I met you. Uh, I met you at that uh, meltdown signing back what a couple months ago. You don't you don't look the age. It's for sure. Thank you. I appreciate it that. Wear it well. No the problem. Flattery gets you.
1: Flattery gets you everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope so.
0: Um, uh, so and you, you kind of mentioned that uh you know Top Cow even in the early days, but sort of still now they're pretty well uh regarded in terms of developing artistic talent uh. Why do you think that is? I mean, obviously, in the early days, you have guys like Benitez and, and Mike Turner and, you know, David Finch, but then even, you know, more recently with guys like Nelson Blake and Kenneth Roquefort and, you know, all the other artists that you guys have had work for you. Why do you think it is that Top Cow just tends to find higher caliber artists or artists that go on to do, you know, be big names in the, the industry?
1: Well, I would love to take some credit for it, but I, I had nothing really to do with any of it. It's all <laughs> Mark Silvestri. You know, Mark. Mark is a, a Hall of Famer artist. Uh, if you ask any of the image founders, they all say Mark is the best of all of them. Even Jim Lee says that. I've said. Hey, I've heard him say it to my face. Oh, wow. And so, you know, Mark is this well-regarded sort of Hall of Famer artist. And Mark has this amazing ability to tutor and apprentice young artists and young talent, and he can even do it through uh, the internet. You know, so it's not like he has to sit down in a room with someone. Mm-hmm he'll get on Skype with someone and uh, talk about their art and, and walk them through stuff. And, uh, I've seen him do it and he's just an amazing teacher and these guys just gravitate toward him. They want to work for him. And, uh, so when Mark walks through artist Sally, you know, everyone sort of just gloms to him and wants to talk to him. And so he has this, uh, he has this amazing presence, uh, to artists. And, uh, I think they just want to work for him. They want to work with him, not yeah. for him necessarily, but with him. And uh, that's, you know, all these guys, Mike Turner, Joe Benitez, Billy Tan, you know, you go through this, this uh, laundry list of some of the major names in comics today. They were all Mark's background penciler. Wow. He would, uh, he would do figure work and do loose backgrounds. Then he'd let them do it. He'd let them do the backgrounds and then he would go through and tighten it up a little bit. Uh, And by that sort of process, these guys just got better. And Mark has this amazing skill. Like uh, I, I've been in this business long enough now to where I can look at someone's art and I can say, okay, this person is professional. I can work with this person, or yeah. I can't. You know, it's it's usually, and that takes me honestly about five seconds to determine. Yeah, and uh, it's it's very quick. And uh, but Mark can look at someone's portfolio that to me looks like dog shit, and I'll, I, he'll say, oh wow, we got to hire this guy. And I'll kind of look at him, and if I didn't know his <laughs> you know, pedigree, I would be like, what are you, what are you smoking, dude? But yeah. uh, he just sees the basics behind, like, I have Mike Turner and Dave Finch's original submissions. Uh, uh, we kept them posterity, and they're awful.
0: Yeah, I heard that Mike
1: Turner didn't know how to draw buildings when he first started. No, his perspective was way off. He had no <laughs> concept of foreshortening or any of these things. And so, no, yeah, yeah but he saw something in it, you know, and... People give. I, I've worked with a variety of different artists, like uh, you know. People give Rob shit for his art, but the mm-hmm. thing about Rob's work is he kind of captured that kinetic raw energy. Oh yeah. You know, maybe it wasn't it wasn't you know artistically perfect, but not, not many comic book artists are artistically perfect. You know?
0: Yeah. No, it's, it's all it's, it's all style about style. Dude. Yeah. So. Yeah, and he. I but, mean, yeah. he kind of captured that sort of that that energy of the nineties and sort of what the uh, what the industry was at the time and what fans wanted at the time
1: um yeah and he's uh gotta, I, I gotta tell you that guy is a phoenix from the ashes i've seen him rise so many times and now he i, I just i i could not take the level of vitriol he gets uh <laughs> if people if no i'm serious because he just laughs it off now and i know him well enough to know it used to bother him when he was younger but now that he's older he just laughs at it you know he's got a beautiful wife a great family he's rich you know yeah. what i mean he's like Fuck all these people, you know, and so and he means it, you know, so mm-hmm. it's just like and he just kind of does stuff for the people that like his work. Um, but uh, I don't know I, I, if people love that kind of vitriol towards me. I'd be like I'd, I'd crawl off in a corner and go do something else. <laughs> yeah. No,
0: that'd be that'd be real tough. I mean, and he does he does take it on the sleeve. I've never seen a guy so optimistic and able to just sort of like wade through whatever negativity comes at him.
1: Well, and it's, it's it's some of it's just insane. I mean, there was a point I think it was ninety five, ninety six, where I was at a convention with Rob, and some guy walks by the booth and is like, "Fuck you, Rob, you suck." And he didn't know Rob. I didn't know this guy. I knew who Rob knew, you know. And so I'm like, and and, and Rob, to his credit, didn't vault over the table and punch the guy in the face like I would. Somebody said that to me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I just like Rob kind of looks at him. He kind of Rob looked up and looked down and just ignored him. And I, I just I just I always, Always been impressed by that because I, I I do not have that uh, that ability to just ignore and tolerate that kind of bullshit.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, what in your mind? I mean, as we're you know kind of talking about some of this you know image stuff and and Top Cow and sort of all that industry stuff. Uh, what is it in your mind that separates Top Cow and makes Top Cow unique from the other uh, imprints at Image and even just the other publishers and comics?
1: Well. Well, I think we're intentionally small. I think that if you look at Top Cow's history, I don't know that we've ever put out more than six or seven books in a month. Mm-hmm. I mean, the most ever might have been eight. I think it was one month, and that's because two of the books were late from a month prior. Um, but uh, so we, you know, we publish four or five books a month. I think we intentionally go out of our way to counter program uh, to other people. You know, if you look in 95, 96, when all of Image was still basically doing superhero riffs, so, I mean, Cyberforce was Mark's original one of his X Men pitches that he was going to do as an X-Men spinoff book. You know, yeah. Ripclaw was Wolverine, you know I mean? It was, <laughs> there, no, I mean, he he's admitted that. And yeah. there's uh, and Psylocke Cy, was, or Psyblade was Psylocke. I mean, these were sort of, he was pitching a, a spinoff team with these other characters. So when he came to, and I think Rob has mentioned that about Youngblood too, that he was planning on doing that at, at, at Marvel. Mm-hmm. So when he came and, and they all launched and he just did that book as his own original thing called Cyberforce. So from 92 to 95, we kind of had uh, superheroes, uh, 95, uh, you know, Witchblade, Darkness, Fathom, Tomb Raider, it became much more supernatural. Yeah. You know, all those titles, it was sort of a supernatural thing. And we did that fairly well until about 2000 and, uh, with the Witchblade TNT TV show sort of, I think it was about five years ahead of its time. Wow. Um, but,
2: uh, I, no, I will I mean, say that I watched that show and I absolutely loved it. <laughs> oh,
1: thank you, thank, you, thank you so much. I, I just, I'm glad that there was one of you out there. So, but <laughs> yeah, but it was just me. <laughs> no, no. You know, that that still is the highest rated TNT TV series ever to be canceled. Really? Yeah. Wow. I, <laughs> I thought I it was mean, awesome. It must have been no, expensive good, then, huh? No, it wasn't what it was either. I, I I don't normally talk too much about this, but if you Google why the Witchblade TNT show was canceled, it has to do with the lead actress and her uh, problems.
2: Ah. Mm. Oh.
1: So she disappeared in the middle of, I think, the eighth episode of the second season. Oh, wow. Just didn't show up. Oh. Just didn't show up. That's That's, that's crazy. <laughs>
2: My childhood is ruined. <laughs>
1: no, she's, uh, I, I think she's, uh, she's, she's doing better now. I've talked to her, actually. She, she was on Kick-Ass. She was the mom on Kick-Ass. If you remember the, oh,
2: uh, that was okay. her, yeah. same lady.
1: And she's been on a few other things, but, uh you know, her, her career sort of never recovered. I mean, if you Google, there's uh like, she was hanging out with Gary Boosie and they, they punched a cop together or something like that. Oh, <laughs> it's <shit.
3: laughs> so it
1: kind, of, it kind of crazy shit, you know, it's it what I was think where, you know, You, you, you finally have something on the air, which, and it's doing well and you see your name up there and you're stoked about it. And then uh, it gets canned for something that you can't control. That's, I got to tell you, that sucks.
0: Yeah, I bet.
1: Um, Uh, yeah, sorry. So So, didn't mean to derail you there. To finish, to finish, to finish it, it's counter-programming. I mean, I, I specifically look, the reason why I went with uh, think tank postal and books like that in the last few years Mm -hmm. was because I realized that Michael Crichton had died. People had kind of mined his library pretty heavily and, uh, that sort of stuff, uh, like hard science stuff, there weren't a lot of people doing it, so I shifted into that. Now there's a lot of people doing that, and we're sort of shifting away from that again. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's just it, part of it's strategic, part of it's what's selling, part of it's what do I want to do. You know, I mean, I, I have, I, I joke. But it's kind of true that I have the greatest job in comics because I I I can do anything I want, yeah. you know, and uh, I work. I get to cherry pick the artists I want to work with. So it's why if you look at all the artists who work on my books, it's all the best people. I love that. Yeah. it just uh, makes a lot of fun for me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and with with your books and and you know the sort of I guess the the top cow counter programming of it all. One thing that I've kind of noticed across pretty much the entire line is that. Uh, any issue of a Top Cow book tends to be around 30 pages, which is you know roughly 10 pages more than most of the rest of the industry. Is there a reason for that, or does it just kind of happen?
1: No, the reason for that is, is, again, it's intentional. And part of it is because I, I ask this question all the time to fans. I said, how many comic books have you read in your life? You know, I'll ask you guys. How many comic books do you think you've read in your lifetime? <laughs> no idea. Thousands, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Thousands. Right. How many of those do you remember? Uh, 75%. Well, that's you. Okay.
0: <laughs> no, we do. I mean, we Identity do kind of memory. talk about it a lot. Like when we're prepping for an interview, uh, you know, we will always want to make sure that we're reading or even if we're just going to talk about something on the show, we try to make sure that we read it right before, you know, like the day before or two days before so that it is still fresh in our minds. Because, yeah, as, as time goes on, you tend to tend to forget. No, it, a lot goes,
3: of it. it goes right out the window about two days later or, or let's say 10 issues, ten ten issues after what I've read. It's pretty much gone.
1: Yeah, yeah, here's the problem with comics. As a entertainment medium value per dollar, if you're not interested in, in collecting them and buying and reselling them as part of a hobby, I don't think it's a, it's a very good use of of an entertainment dollar. And I've argued this for a long time because mm-hmm. if you pay 3 to $4 for a book that you read in five minutes and you never think about again, how would you compare that to renting a movie or a, a variety of other experiences that you could spend that same money on? Yeah. I mean, you could buy... A, you can buy a, a prose novel for four or five bucks, take you 12, 14 hours to read it, yeah. you know, versus something you read in five minutes and never think about. Granted, it's a visual medium, and that gives you something else to consider if you're a fan of an art form, and I think mm. that's part of it. But uh, h- here's here's my thing. is, is I just That idea of, of reading something and never thinking about it again, so we try to do what we call added value stuff where people just want to read the comic series and that's it you know, you can read it and move on, but there's additional material in the back. Usually we put some artists and writers notes. We'll include like for a lot of the hard science stuff I do, I'll, I'll put in there. This is real. This yeah. is science. It's based on real stuff. It's not just made up stuff. And, uh, some people like to look at that kind of stuff. So it's just, it's just giving someone a, a deeper experience, you know, mm-hmm. and between that, that we do in our books and the social media that we do, that we try to make sort of more personal than I think some people try to do. Yeah. We try to make it more inclusive and, uh, it's, it's, it becomes this whole sort of uh, – it, it's a weird way of life, you know, and, and the hardcore fans, I think, appreciate it. Mm-hmm. I talk to them all the time and, you know, when they come up to me at the cons, they feel like they know me even if I don't remember who the hell they are. <laughs> and, uh, you know, no, it's, it's because if someone follows you on Facebook and you talk about your personal life, your wife, your kids, and then you go and you talk about all the work and everything about your life and then you go meet someone and they've been reading all this for months and months and months, they feel like they know you. Yeah. You know? and well, that's course. That's a weird experience.
0: I'm sure, so, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Yeah. Um no, and that that does make sense. I I I've noticed that a lot like just, you know, we were we talked about it the first time that we really like noticed it heavily was with uh, Eclipse when we were talking to Zach. Um, you know, and the back matter for Eclipse is fantastic. You know, it's got a lot of in-depth stuff about their creative process and and sort of the development of it. Um, but then, you know, the same thing like any time I pick up a top cow trade, whether it's postal or, you know, think tank or anything like that, it's, you know, there's always that back matter whether it's in a single issue or in a trade it's all sort of there to kind of enhance the experience so i think that well, is and, that's,
3: and it absolutely worked because uh, i uh, you know in, in prep for this i read the the tithes and i in that whole back matter you have in there you talk about all the different churches and all the different sort of uh, scandals that have popped up and i, I mean that took me down a, a, a pretty solid rabbit hole and i thought that was awesome i mean it it, it, it embeds it further in your mind than just sort of Oh, that was a fun story. Okay, I'll put that on my shelf and never read that again.
1: Well, it makes uh, you think about it, and see, yeah. that's the thing is 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 that that experience becomes more interesting because you realize how it is, how it relates to yourself, and you learn and become curious. And it's not just something that uh, comes and goes. I think you're the type of person that's uh, that would like the content that we're doing. There are some people that don't like it, and I've met them and I've talked to them, and they'll read our stuff and they're like, "Oh, this extra stuff. I don't want to read all this shit." And I'm like, <laughs> "Okay, oh. yeah." There's some people. There's some people that like Michael Bay films.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh
0: so in in talking about that and and you know I, I do think you're right that in you know comics the the entertainment dollar is definitely not as uh efficiently spent or effectively spent as it is in other mediums uh how do you see things like that sort of changing the comics industry or how do you see the comics industry evolving over the next you know decade or so <sighs>
1: Wow, that's a hard question to answer, and I think about it every day. Um, you know, the thing is, I think torrents changed a lot of things. The uh, torrents throughout, mm-hmm. like, 2000 to about 2009 or 10, or whenever Comic psychology launched. Yeah. I don't remember what the transitional year for that was. But, you know, there was a lot of torrenting going on. And uh, I know everyone on the publishing side was sort of opposed to it for obvious reasons. But yeah. uh, I, I, I've changed my tunes somewhat on it for the reason that I have built fans that read torrents that now come buy real books for me. Yeah. And I don't think they would have otherwise. I had a guy about five years ago at a con I was doing at San Luis Obispo, he walks up to my table and buys everything. You know, I, I put out like 40 trades. So it's like three, $400. I'm like, wow. why are you buying all this stuff? He's like, yeah. And he's like, oh, you know, I, well, I've read all it. And I really like it. I'm a big fan of yours. And I'm like, well, then why are you buying it? And he's like, oh, well, uh, you know, I, I got it on uh, Pirate Bay. And, I can't, <laughs> and he, he was kind of embarrassed to say it to me. And I didn't, I didn't chastise him for it because he's about to hand me, you know, four hundred bucks. And yeah. I, uh, so I signed all his books, and then I, I went home that day. And I can tell you, for weeks after that, I just thought about that, and I started thinking about how do you get someone to try something new? The problem with comics is there's two thousand new books that hit the shelves every month. There's two, three hundred graphic novel trade paperbacks that hit the trades, hit the stores every month, and uh, stores don't even carry all of those. Stores don't even carry all of Marvel and DC anymore. You know, I mean, I I, yeah. I know stores that are that carry 70%, 60% of Marvel or DC's lines now because they just have certain books they can't sell. So if you're doing an independent book, and I know sometimes people look at Image Comics, Top Cow as not being independent, but I, I still see us that way. I always have. And yeah. uh, it's it's very hard to get someone to try something new, especially if they don't know your work. You know, So how do you get someone to try a book if they don't know you, they don't know your work, well, for me, I, I try to work with artists that already have pre-existing followings. That makes it easier for me, but not everyone can do that. Yeah. I, I think there's—you uh, have to sample it. You know, if you go to any convention I go to, you'll see that I'm there handing out free comics. Yes, I give out three, four hundred free books every show, and I tell people—you know—I usually give them out on a Friday. I look for people with three-day badges, and I said, "Hey, read this tonight. Read it tomorrow. Swing back by tomorrow afternoon. Let me know what you think." And uh, you know, five, ten percent of those people—they come back and they buy something.
0: Yeah. You know that's
1: a lot easier than trying to hard sell them on the spot.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like it's it's kind of funny because uh, Dylan Gray, who's your your uh, marketing guy there at Top Cow, like I've I've known his face now for a long time just because any time that I go somewhere where Top Cow is, Dylan is there, like handing out you know uh, the the first issues of of Think Tank or whatever, like. And it's it's a, an interesting strategy because that was honestly like after so you were at a, a signing with. Um, Ryan Vaughn, Joe Casey, and Steve Siegel at Meltdown Comics. And I thought about, I thought about it for a while afterwards because, you know, you had your guys basically going through this entire line that was around the block, handing out the first issue of think tank, uh, for free. And what I started to notice was the amount of people who would read that first issue in the line waiting to, you know, go get a, a comic signed or whatever, read that first issue in the line and then buy the trade by the time they got to the yeah. front of the line, and yeah,
1: that i I probably signed thirty trades that night, yeah it was it was so I don't interesting think to watch. I, I don't think I, w- I, I would have sold a single trade. I don't think I would have signed a single trade if I hadn't done that,
0: yeah I, I mean it could have been because you know it was it was uh pretty apparent pretty fast that like you know because Brian Vaughn doesn't do tons of signings that a lot of people are going there you know to get Saga signed or why the last man or whatever uh. But it was just funny like how as the line sort of evolved, how many people are picking up think tank and and I think there was one other comic that you guys were handing out the first uh, the first issue of um, and i was I was standing there talking to you a little bit about podcasting and, and comics and stuff like that and I just noticed like the amount of people that I saw grab a think tank trade before they got to the front of the line and then come up to you and have it signed is it it's an interesting strategy and I think that you're right where you know, I mean, not to use the drug dealer analogy, but that I was first going to drop the drug dealer analogy.
3: <laughs> yeah,
1: the, no, the, I, I actually, I actually say that all the time. I say I call it the comic drug deal. First one's free. Yeah, I, I say that to people, <laughs> and uh, no, that's, so that's funny that you said that. I may have said that to you that night, but no, it is, it is true. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you're not familiar with my me or my work, and you've never tried it before, are you going to drop four bucks on something to try it? You're probably not because there's too many other books that uh, are out there that are a little shinier, a little more appealing, and you mm-hmm. don't know. I mean, it's, that's why it's an expensive uh, hobby to sample. Yeah. So, you know, and that's why so many Kindle books, they have the first 20, 30 pages, first chapter free. You know, you yeah. can try it, you yeah. know. I mean, and uh, something with, that's why there are movie trailers, you know, because you can get kind of an idea. And that's why so many movies have stars and established people you know. They're trying to stack the deck to give you a reason to see it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and TV shows, for the most part, are are free, so you get to sample it that way. Um, but uh, so that's that's the thing. The industry has changed, and I think it's going to continue to change. I think you're going to see uh, free and and more uh, value driven. Uh, content that is intended to get people to sample and try and become a fan. Mm-hmm. And then once you convert that person to a fan, then you can actually effectively monetize that person with a hardcover or something that they want to keep in their collection once they're a real fan. Yeah, you know it's 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 similar to the experience of going to a concert, you know and getting some merch signed or whatever it would be. So um, I think that's really uh, that's been happening already. In terms of where the industry is going to be in a decade. I, I gotta be honest, I don't worry about it. I, uh, it's, it's, it's not really something that affects me. You know, I I look, I've been in this business for 25 years and I've been told five times that the industry was crashing and print was going under and we all needed to go find other jobs and, uh, digital was going to replace everything. And, you know, piracy was going to replace everything. So I kind of I realize, you know what, the distribution methodologies and the platforms and the way we uh, we put this content out there are constantly gonna evolve and it's not really the, the distribution and the evolution of the distribution is not something I have any interest in. Mm-hmm. So we're just gonna keep creating content. You know, there have been people creating stories and characters and interesting concepts for millions of years, you know, whether it was told around a fire, plate, fire pit, you know, ten thousand years ago or or you know, whatever yeah you know sunday funnies and uh so developing and creating content it's why we try things like kickstarter with golgotha you know we we do different things to see what works you know and i wasn't the first person to do a kickstarter you know we weren't even close but i looked at that saw saw how people did it and same thing with digital you know you look at some of these things and some people offered us money to do some uh, motion comics i kind of looked at that and i'm like why would anyone pay for a motion comic? I'm like, you know, you have actual animation that's better, and for the most part, free. Yep. You have comics, and then you have this weird hybrid that is like, it's like shitty animation, and you want people to pay for it. You know, and it's just like, I, I never really understood sort of the idea of a motion comic.
0: Yeah, it's like, because, dipping, you know, it's like dipping your feet in two pools when you could just swim in one of them
1: yeah and I think part of the the uh experience of a comic book and the fun of it is uh you know there is still not completely like in prose, but there still is that space between the panels and the and the time between the pages that you fill in in your brain. you know mm-hmm. there still is some sort of Im- imaginative cognitive element to comic book reading, unlike you know watching film or reading a prose novel mm-hmm. you know where so much is just filled in for you. you still have to sort of figure that out in your head, and I think that is part of the attraction of it,
0: yeah. That's kind of funny because I like one of my questions that was like kind of coming up on my little list here was to ask about what the unique appeal of comics is to you. But you kind of uh, you kind of answered it right there.
1: Um, Well, I think one thing I would like to say, and I I try to hit this home is I'm a writer and I'm a publisher, but I actually still think that artists are the most important part of the medium. mm -hmm. And I I see a lot of writers out there saying that writers are the most important part of the medium. And and I'm going to counter that by saying that there are plenty of comics that are shittily written with really good art that I've been doing well for decades. Yeah. There are very few comics that are very well written with really horrible art that do well consistently. <laughs> you know, so I mean it's a visual medium and and my personal preference, I I there I, I have a hard time looking at comics with bad art. Yeah. You know, I mean with the art is really bad, it's so distracting to me that uh I just I I often put it down by page five or six. So you know, for me I think, you know, and I think for most people, the, the attraction of comics and the, and the unique is, is the visual element of it, it's the fantasy of it. I mean, I think it's harder now than it used to be because with CGI and things like this in film, they can rival what we used to do in comics. You used to, you know, Kirby and Stan Lee and those guys in their days, you couldn't see people throwing planets around. You know, yeah. you could see that on in a Transformers movie now, but you couldn't see that in the 60s, 70s or 80s. So, it's uh, it makes our job harder these days.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, and that, that is interesting. That's, that's, that's an aspect of it that I hadn't thought about that when comics started out, you know, in the the Kirby crackle days, uh, that type of visual wasn't something that you could get anywhere but a comic book. That's really interesting. Um, now Matt, I know, uh, Matt, or Matt, I know you read the tithe and so I'll let you follow up on this one, but, uh, Matt Hawkins, tell us how the tithe came about.
1: Well, uh, Rasan Ekadal and I had been working on Think Tank. We did three volumes together, and he told me he wanted a break from doing military shit. Because <laughs> <And, laughs> uh, I, no, I kept sending him just pages and pages of reference photos of uh, this is what this plane looks like. This is what this uniform looks like. And uh, and that, that gets old. So he's like, let's do something a little different. And uh, so I always wanted to do a high story. Um, I love The Town, one of my favorite movies. And uh, oh, yeah. I, I just – I could not – I didn't want to do another bank robbery or an armored car or an art museum theft. I'd seen so many of those. So I started thinking about, well, where is there tons of cash that could be stolen? And I stumbled across some stuff online about how this church in Lakewood Church in, in uh Texas, Houston, Texas, I think it is, was was generating like a half a million dollars a month in cash. Wow. Cash receipts. Holy and shit. not just credit cards, but a half a million yes. in cash receipts. And I'm like, well, shit, why isn't anybody stealing that? You know, and so I started sort of putting the math together, and I realized my parents are really Pentecostalist Christians, and I don't want to piss them off, so <laughs> I didn't just want to steal steal money from churches and make it seem like it was this anti religious thing. So I, I sort of developed where you know Samantha Copeland, who is the leader of the, uh, the the sort of the hacker team, mm-hmm. um, she was she became kind of a bit of a Robin Hood, so she was stealing money from corrupt churches and giving it to charity, and that's that's the basic sort of idea of where it came from. And then the uh, the two FBI agents sort of uh, came after that. I sort of developed the the villains arc first, and then developed out the the guys. And then I ma- intentionally made Dwayne, uh, the older black guy, uh, like a hardcore Christian guy, like mm. and smart, smart, and well spoken, and, and uh, a family guy, and you know, not not. In a person where it wasn't intended to make fun of religion in any way. And yeah. then I made the James Miller character to be sort of how I feel about religion. and uh, <laughs> and I wrote, so it was much easier for me to write the Jimmy Miller character than it was for the Dwayne Campbell character. So mm-hmm. um, but uh, yeah, so I, I, I developed those two FBIs, and I, I love the dialogue back and forth between the two of them about religion and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, then just sort of uh, the rest of the story just kind of came, you know, and kind of went with it. Tithe was intended to be just a quick mini-series that Rassan and I were going to do between arcs of Think Tank. And uh, we also knew we were going to go with Think Tank Volume 4 in color, so uh, we wanted to do the tithe in color to see sort of this transitional thing. Mm. And uh, the, the Tide did really well, so we ended up doing Tithe Volume 2. And uh, Samaritan, which just came out last week, is, is Tide Volume 3. I just called it something else to trick people into buying it.
0: Yeah, I was, curi- I was curious about that.
3: So have you had any, so have you had anybody uh, what, how am I, what am I trying to say? So have you had anybody uh, you know post reading the tithe or whatever, kind of you know reach out to you and say hey, this hey, this really sort of changed my views on you know, how i how I think about my own personal religion or how I think you know churches function or anything like that. I mean, what's sort of been the response there? because it's such a tricky little subject, and I, I I don't know i i I admire you writing something like that 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 could be taken so. Uh, offensively, I guess, to some people?
1: Well, uh, there certainly were people that were offended. I, it, people were more offended by the second arc than the first. Um, and I don't know if you've read Arc 2, but the, the first arc, uh, I had, because of the stuff I kind of wrote in the back about how I was a Christian, then I, then I sort of lost my faith and my parents mm-hmm. were always trying to bring me back into it. And, and because I sort of wrote that and the people who I think would get that knee-jerk anger, I think they determined they were all going to try to save my soul, you know? So I, uh-huh. I, I got... I got a lot of uh, people proselytizing to me and trying and see the thing is I, I I will talk to those people and I will, uh, and I try to be as respectful as possible. I always, I always start it from the front by saying to them that there is very, very little chance that you're going to change my opinion. However, if you wish to have a uh, fun discussion, which I will not make fun of your beliefs, I'm happy to uh, discuss why I don't believe what you believe and we can discuss why you do. And, uh, you know, as long as we respect sort of and, and do it in a civil manner, I'm happy to do that. And uh, usually that goes well for about a week, and then they get pissed off. And I've I've had a couple, <laughs> couple you know, to go fuck myself, and you know I'm like, oh okay, you're trying to convert me to your Christianity. You just told me to go fuck myself. Okay, that's nice. So, but uh, no, I you know whatever. I I sure. I, I went through in my uh, mid to late twenties. Uh, a phase once I became an atheist where I think in every atheist goes through this, where you become a little bit militant about it, where you start to think that anyone that believes in this crap is, is idiots and, and they're so stupid. And why do they believe this stuff when it's obviously it's just crap? And, uh-huh. and I went through about a two year phase of that. And then I very quickly grew out of that and grew up because I think that's just destructive for everyone. Yeah. And I kind of have a, uh, a tolerant viewpoint of now, like, is that, I, don't, I don't know. Is there a God? I, I don't know. I can't really sure. say there is or there isn't, you know? And uh, so if if someone chooses to believe what they believe, as long as it's not uh, if infringing on, you know, anything I want to do, which generally it doesn't, and they're not chopping off people's heads to uh, make a point, um, I'm usually okay with it.
0: Yeah, that
3: makes sense. Yep. Yep. Same here.
1: Um, I did get death after Tides Volume 2, though. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, several. And they're all from Muslims.
0: Oh, wow. 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 There's Whoa. a there's a tease for people to read uh, volume two of the tithe. What <laughs> what was it that sparked all that uh, all that animosity? <laughs> we'll find out in volume uh, two. Well,
1: you know, I, I, volume two is essentially it opens with a, a Muslim kid who suicide bombs St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. So um, and and so that's how it opens. Wow. And, uh It's 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 uh, you know it's not nice, fun, frivolous content, but I don't really write that. So it's. Of you know, I, I I sort of looked at a uh, yeah I, I don't want to give too much away. Yeah, but no, don't give too much away. A little heavier with uh, Islam, you know, mm. and I even call the arc Islamophobia. And I think when people actually read the entire thing, they actually see that I'm making sort of a tolerant message about hey, we should just be you know Christians ultimately you know it, just be tolerant. You know, I mean yes, yeah, so let's not tolerate extremists of any kind. You know, let mm. let's uh, let's not paint a broad brush. Um, and I have a weird worldview cause I grew up on military basis. My dad was in the military and he was an engineer and, you know, I was this crazy Christian kid and then i become an atheist and now I live in this liberal Hollywood weirdo place. And so, you know, and I've come, I've become sort of liberal and, uh, uh, so I, you know, I have this weird worldview where I look at myself when I was 18 and people called me Alex P. Keaton and you guys might be too young to know who that is, but that was, uh, Michael yeah. J. Fox's character Family Ties Yeah. it was, yeah. uh, this little reagan republican kid who wore a tie to school that's what people would call me and now uh, i get called the liberal whack job which is kind of funny to me <laughs> same guy same, same, same lifetime you know it's weird yeah.
0: and so you talked about uh being raised on a military base did that influence uh your writing for the think tank at all i mean i i know that kind of in the notes you mentioned that it did but how how heavily did that uh factor into how you wrote think tank
1: Oh, it affected all of it. I mean, it was uh, pivotal to my childhood was growing up on military bases and then growing up in the Cold War. You know, I mean, uh, I try to explain that to people today. But if you were not a teenager in the 80s, I don't think you really truly had the same fear that we did of war, thermonuclear war, uh, you know, because I also lived on a military base where they would run drills and, you know, there were, uh, bomb shelters and, and stuff. And, uh, yeah,
3: you know, right you would see
1: face. is right in my face on a daily basis. And, uh, you know. I, I was in Vandenberg, uh, up in North, uh, central California when, uh, there was something that happened and, and they shut the whole base down and, and they thought that we were going to war. There was some sort of a, a mistake, you know, and there've been mm-hmm. several things when you start reading in the history of this stuff about how there was, there was multiple times when we were very close to war, Yeah, you know, and then, uh, when you, when you know, when I have a physics background. Obviously, It's my dad was uh, an engineer, so we we talked about things. And you know, I, I read books like uh, Feynman's book on how he thought that when a thermonuclear war would happen, that it would set the atmosphere on fire. That shit scares me, you know, because you set the atmosphere on fire, suddenly we have a planet that becomes Mars in about a quarter of a second.
0: Yeah. Yep. That's <laughs> that's a, that's an insane thought. How? Because fa- yeah, I mean, uh Anyway, I, I'm not going to dwell on that for too long. That's uh was a terrifying thought. Um, Well, pure oxygen burns, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. (laughs) That's the thought. Yeah. Go look up, uh, you know, you want to scare yourself just for fun. Uh, Google a thing called Project Bravo, um, and it was in the 60s. And uh, there's video of all these physicists shitting their pants when this thing they realized was much bigger than they thought it was going to be. And then they they change to looks of glee when it finally starts to contain because they were concerned that this bomb was going to keep spreading and that they would not be able it would cause a chain reaction where the uh, you know the the radius of it would just keep continue to grow and wow. it would not stop and it would encompass the earth you know mm-hmm. and so that's that's scary shit and see that's the key to all the stuff I write by the way I go get scientists drunk and I ask <laughs> them what scares them and because uh, <laughs> I, I went to school with a lot of these guys so a lot of these guys that are you know in their late forties like me they're all in the pivot of the career in science community and i know a lot of them personally because we went to school and uh I, i'll go up buy them a couple beers we'll talk about the old days i'll ask them what scares them and you know what scares some of these guys is not the same thing that scares normal people
0: yeah yeah absolutely it's not
1: spiders or sharks it's uh, epigenetics and biomimetic fish drones you know it's that's scary shit <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, that that is absolutely terrifying to think about. But in terms of like from from the writer, you know, like the writer perspective is just like, oh man, that's so like that's so fascinating.
1: Um, it's it's the best thing in the world to be a writer because I got to tell you, I, I've toured the L.A. morgue, I've I've gone on ride-alongs with cops, CHP. Uh, you know, you can just they love. I mean, to, to help writers because most of the people in these career fields, they want their career fields to be portrayed accurately. Yeah, yeah. And so I've gone, I've gone into uh, and had conversations and interviewed and lunch with major lawyers, you know, uh, you know, on people that, uh, I, I, one of them, what's his name? Not, not Kardashian, the one that, uh, still alive that was on the OJ trial. I, I had lunch with him and talked to him about the OJ trial a little bit. Oh, and, wow. uh, so it's, it's, it's really interesting, you know, when you have the access and see, that's the thing about scientists, you know, some of these major scientists in their fields, they have they have Twitter feeds, but they have 50 followers. But you look at the 50 followers. It's you know Bill Gates, Elon yeah. Musk, Bill, Bill <laughs> Clinton, you know Barack Obama. You know these are, they're being followed by 50 of the most famous and rich people in the world. Wow. And I'm like, but then you have uh, you know Kim Kardashian who has what 40 million you know vapid followers or whatever it is. And uh, so I it's actually not that hard to get to meet these scientists. You know you go on there and you follow them on Twitter. You engage them. You show that you're not you know an idiot. And uh, and then I'll I'll send them a direct message on Twitter because they usually eventually follow me back. And then I'll I'll ask them if I can buy them a beer, and they almost nice. always say yes. Huh? I don't think I've ever been tu- I don't think I've ever been turned down for that.
0: Wow, that's uh that's interesting. I'll have to keep a note of that strategy because uh, there's definitely a lot of fields that I need to research.
1: Uh, well, there's also a uh, group in LA. Uh, give them a plug called the Science Entertainment Exchange, and its specific goal is to marry scientists with screenwriters and writers. Oh wow. It's called the science. It, Go ahead. I, I heard, yeah, I heard about that. That's like you could just call them up and yeah. get, get
3: any science you need from them.
1: Yeah, yeah, you, you, uh, like the guy Rick Leverett who runs it is, uh, he, he did comics for me. He wrote a comic called Berserker and uh, another one. I forget the name of it, but uh, nice guy. He runs it and they have events all over LA all the time. And uh, I get invited to a lot of these and get to meet a lot of people. But uh, whenever I need, like if, I, if I'm writing a comic about, using cancer as a weapon and I want to talk to an immunotherapist and get some specific, you know, information on how, how do these vector things work and inserting stuff to, to fight these cancer genes. You know, I can email him and say, this is what I, inter- I need to find out about. Can you, can you hook me up with a specialist? And, uh, they will, they'll, they'll, they'll connect you with someone and, and usually it starts with email and you open an email exchange. And, uh, usually by the time I'm four or five emails into it, I'll, I'll say, Hey, can you know, can I buy you a beer? And almost always the answer is yes. <laughs> and, uh, then I go hang out with them, you know, I'll interview them. And, uh, these guys give, they just, I love the face to face sort of conversations with professionals in the fields I write about. Uh, cause then the great thing is then they read my books and they recommend them to other people. And then yeah. I get feedback. Um, and then I, well, it's, it's, it's a little scary sometimes. Cause I know that think tank is read by like, uh, Michael Herrera, who's a, uh, one of the, uh, he's a uh, one or two star general in the army is a Facebook buddy of mine. And he, uh, he reads my stuff and always sends me every other issue. He'll send me, uh, oh, you got this wrong. And, uh, <laughs> but no, I, I actually like that. And I think I, I adopted an attitude early on where if I'm working like, and trying to create something authentic, I'm obviously going to make mistakes. So if someone corrects me, I'll just fix it in the next printing.
3: Mm, there you go.
1: So if you look at Think Tank, almost every single issue of the 32-page book compared to the trades, there are slight differences, and it's usually me correcting the science. Huh.
0: That's, that's actually pretty interesting. There's, uh, there's another one of those reasons for people to, uh, to to double buy, pick up the issues, and then pick up the trade and find all the differences.
1: <laughs> well, if you got that much time, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I know.
0: <laughs> I, I don't, but who knows? I mean, I, there are a lot of uh, visceral and, and feral comic book fans out there.
1: No, I know, and I love it. Thank you for <laughs> give me your...
0: Um, so talk about I I know in kind of recent years, you know, whether it's with uh, Golgotha or Postal or Eden's Fall, you've been co writing a lot more and particularly with uh, with Brian Hill. Uh, Where where did that collaboration start? And why do you? uh, Why do you find that sort of creative relationship to uh, be successful?
1: Well, with Brian specifically, I was paying him to script edit me. Um, I always thought he was a fantastic, uh, quippy dialogue guy, and uh, dialogue was always the, the harder part for me. Breaking down the scenes and the stories always fairly simple for me, but uh, actually putting the the actual words in their mouth that you know are on the page was always you know it's it's one of the most important things. But it's uh, there was always a little more of a struggle for me than the other part, and yeah. uh, so. I would write drafts of scripts, and I, I, I'm a. I don't believe in writer's block because I just write very quickly, and I'll just do redrafts, and then I'll give them to editors and get notes, and then write them again. So, you know, when people tell me they get writer's block, I just kind of look at them and say, just write anything. Don't be an idiot. You know, no, it doesn't even it doesn't even need to make sense because a lot of times if you write whatever it is just to fill in the page, by the time you finish, oh, I should have done this. Yeah. Just the act the act of doing it makes you figure out what you should have done. And depending on time, you know, I've, I've, I've done things where I finished scripts and uh, I knew I had enough time. I figured out a better way to do it. I scrapped the entire thing and started over. Um, I don't do that a lot, (laughs) but I do that on first issues. Yeah. Because uh, the first issues are so important, you know? So, um, but no, for Brian, like I said, I I just really like collaborating with him. Um, He's a guy where we'll go sit in a room and chat and, you know, and, and get bounce ideas back and forth and, he thinks very differently than I do, mm-hmm. and I, I like that. I I try not to surround myself with people that think like I do. One of the problems of me being a writer is all the editors are people I'm paying. Mm-hmm. So uh, it makes it a little harder sometimes for me to get what I would consider good notes, good critical notes, because yeah. uh, they're trying not to piss me off. <laughs> so and uh brian never seemed to have that problem
0: (laughs) brian brian's a great guy we uh we just barely had him on the show and and it was funny because we ended up spending uh inadvertently spending like 20 minutes talking about like uh kennedy conspiracies and all this stuff (laughs) it was it's really interesting
1: well and his and his uh his sort of interests are are different than mine you know and i I think we sort of overlap in our interest in psychology but Mm. uh he he and I have different interests and looks at things from different ways. Um, and we grew up in very different environments. So uh and I, I enjoy that. I think he he can write comedy a little better than I do, but he can also be very dark. So um it's yeah. just you know, I'm writing another book called Swing with My Wife, which is uh sort of a spinoff book really of Sunstone. And uh that I gotta tell you is the hardest thing I've ever written. I, I writing slice of life comedy shit is fucking hard. Um that you know. <laughs> I got to tell you, having uh, two guys gun each other down in the middle of a church trying to steal some money, it's easy to make that look interesting. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Having, a, having a couple get into a fight at a restaurant and make that look interesting is, is really hard. <laughs> it, it actually – it taught me a tremendous amount of respect for Harlequin romances and stuff like that because I'm like – I used to make fun of those things. And I'm realizing like, god damn, these things are hard to fucking write.
0: Yeah. So <laughs> – So and, and that's, like, I,
1: Go ahead. Go, go ahead. Sorry.
0: I was just gonna say that's that's interesting uh, that you're writing a comic with your wife, and I was just gonna ask you know how you guys met and uh, you know all all that sort of sappy stuff.
1: Well, I uh, I was married to my first wife, and uh, uh, it was married, had two kids, and got divorced. And then I, I have full custody of my sons, so I'll, I'll leave it as that as, mm-hmm. as as enough for me to say about my ex wife because <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 very rare for a a man to get cust- full custody of his children. That's so, true, um, and then. Then I went through a profound period of depression, um, and then in 2011, I—that's uh, I, actually—you know—I didn't write comics from 2000 to 2009, and uh, I didn't write a single comic. You know, I was doing business, uh, doing video games and films. I worked on two seasons of the Power Rangers. I did a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. And then uh, but in 2010, I was divorced. I just had been divorced. I was kind of depressed. And so I, I, I thought writing a comic with Rasan to do Think Tank would be kind of fun. It might get me out, shake me out of my depression. Yeah. And uh, so I did it and I did well. Uh, and then I just kept writing and I look back now and I've, I've got 30 trades sitting on my shelf right here that I'm looking at. I'm like, That's God insane. damn, I did that in s- six years, you know. So That's ridiculous. I, 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 yeah, I've written like 200, 200 comics in the last seven years. You know, it's uh, so it's 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 kind of fun. You know, and I found out I was the cheapest writer I have, which, was, <laughs> uh, which economically uh, worked out. Yeah, but no, yeah. I, uh, I, after I got divorced, it was kind of a, not a fun divorce. I, I I was determined never to get married again. And I'm of course married now, but the, uh, <laughs> uh, and so I, I did the typical guy thing where I saw this friend of mine, uh, Cedric Nokon, who's an artist actually. Mm-hmm. And he was uh, an artist at extreme. And, and he, he kept photographing all these really pretty girls on Facebook and I'm like, Hey, introduce me to some of these girls. <laughs> 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 and he did. He introduced me to three of them. And uh, one of them uh, was Jenny and uh, Jennifer Chung. And uh, she wasn't actually, she was the only one that wasn't actually a model. She's a computer programmer. I, I, I oh, don't think sure. I could just marry some dumb person. Well, yeah. I, I couldn't handle that. He, uh, so, uh, yeah, I started dating her. And uh, what is it, seven, eight years later, we are married and been married for a few years, and life's good.
0: Wow. That's uh, that's interesting, and it, it kind of like it's funny because you know you read a lot of uh, a lot of your works, and it's very clear that you're you know fascinated by technology and science and stuff like that. So it is it is pretty uh, fitting that you would end up with a computer programmer. Um,
1: yeah, she's a you know full full stack web developer. Does uh, does sites architecture and, and front end mainly now front end UI stuff. She writes in a bunch of programs and just real smart. I again she's she's raised she's born in Hong Kong. You know, I immigrated to the United States when she was eight, grew up in Chicago, and then came out here. So, has just this, this—I I love learning from people. You know, yeah. she speaks Cantonese and English, and uh, her whole family is is interesting. And uh, I've I've learned a whole lot about Asian culture being married to one.
0: That's pretty kick-ass, man. I don't I don't know. She might be the first uh, major comic book writer to come from a computer programming background. So there you go. Is she planning on writing anything more after this one with you, or is that kind of the? dipping her toes and getting out
1: i don't know i mean we'll see i mean this this <laughs> one specifically because it was a a romantic sort of thing and it wasn't really my forte and i wanted uh it, we wrote it specifically with sort of a, we wanted it to have a woman's voice because uh the, the readers of sunstone are you, are you familiar with sunstone
0: yeah yeah that's uh step step and
1: how do you say his name Stepan and sitch Okay. Uh, it's, he says, get drunk and pretend like you're Sean Connery And you say his name right <laughs> uh, and, uh, But when you come to the States He just goes by Steven Sedgwick. Okay. So when he, when he introduces himself He says his name is Steven Sedgick But it's Stephen Sitch Is how you say it in his tongue huh. um, But he uh, No, he started doing Sandstone As this online free web comic And it now, in print, is our best-selling title Like 10 to 1 of everything else we're doing
0: Yeah, I've heard and, that's uh, like one of the best-selling like, comics In general, as far as American comics go yeah. For it trains, is
1: insane. The numbers are insane. And what happened is I do I do 20 shows a year. That's where I make a lot of my income is mm-hmm. selling at conventions. And, uh, no, I see these people come up, and, and they're usually 30, 35-year-old women, you know, and they're the mm-hmm. ones buying Sunstone uh, from mm-hmm. the table. And uh, they, they would talk to me about the book a little bit and ask me if we had anything else. And I would look at, you know, Think Tank. I would look at Postal. I'd look at, you know, Evangel- or uh, Aphrodite 9. I'd realize – yeah, no, we don't really have anything like uh, Sunstone.
0: <laughs> yeah, because Sunstone is kind so, of the uh, the Fifty Shades of Gray audience, more or less, right?
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, we call it Fifty Shades of Gay because it's two lesbian girls. But uh, there you go. It's it's and that was sort of a joke, and Cedric hates that. But uh, I, I joke about it and uh, <laughs> like I say that, and people kind of get it. But here's the crazy thing about that. The people that are actually into S and that come up and talk to me at the shows that buy this book and are fans of the show, they love Sunstone. They hate Fifty Shades of Grey, and the reason <laughs> is because Sunstone is about this uh, sexually positive uh, experience between people that trust and love each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey is this rapey, crazy shit, you yeah. know. And i, I I've watched <laughs> these movies with my wife, trying to, uh, you know have fun for Valentine's day or whatever. And
2: and they're not,
1: they they do nothing for me. They're not titillating to me at all. You know I mean? I'm like, I watch these things. I'm like, Jesus Jesus Christ. It's like, you know,
2: they're, they're creepy. That guy's a stalker. Like
1: (laughs) you you nailed the word. There's the word. They're creepy. You know? (laughs) Yeah. my wife read the first 50 shades of gray book and she said it's even worse than the films because in the book they t- she has this internal monologue where she's always talking about her inner goddess and this and, that and the other thing And says well, my, my wife says it's nauseating so <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, no i think i think the key is is to treat something as authentic you know i talk about think tank and, as being authentic yeah. uh, sunstone is authentic to that SM community and uh, when we started looking at well what other sex subcultures are there that are sort of misunderstood and sort of not really treated accurately but they're popular amongst a dedicated fan base and i realized and then i started doing the research and i started realizing you know in, in la alone the greater la area there's only one i think maybe two SM clubs but there's like nine swinging clubs yeah so uh, the idea of couples swinging with single girls single guys or other couples is way more popular than people think and i I've been to a million shows, uh, you know, all, and every time I go to a city, I look at the the local club and my wife, I saw sometimes go just check it out just just go peruse it and watch crazy people do crazy shit. And it's, uh, it's this whole community. And I've learned a lot about it. I think that's the key is, is, is sort of trying to make it authentic. And I think one of the reasons why Sunstone works so well is that, uh, it's very clear that Cedric and his wife do it. Yeah. And, uh, the, one of my one of my stories, I, I laugh. It's the first time Cedric's ever came to Los Angeles to visit Top Cow. They asked me if I would take him to the store, and it was something dungeon, you know. And this is like 2006 or seven. He was doing Witchblade at the time, and uh. they they came on the plane and like the, the, They immediately and and uh, I, I took them up to this place in Silver Lake. If you're from LA, I live in Culver City. Silver Lake seems like a million miles away, but I, I drove I drove them to Silver Lake. Yeah, that's right. An hour had, actually. Oh, okay. So how, Culver City seems like a million miles away, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely it does. <laughs> so, but do you know this place? I don't know if it's still there. It's something, something dungeon or I, I don't know. But it's I a feel like I've heard it mentioned. N-
0: I think you're pretty yeah. familiar with it, Jason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, okay, I go there every Wednesday.
1: <laughs> it's your new conflict day, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> No, and he asked me to take him there, and I took his him and his wife there. And when they walked in, uh, the owner like flipped out, like he's meeting his his, his long you know lost relative, and uh, <laughs> he had custom asked for custom mad some suit made for his wife, and and they grabbed this thing. And I was just I, at the time I was kind of looking at this, and I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> but now I, I I get it a little better. So it's uh it's you know. It's interesting stuff. And I, I encourage, if you've never tried Sunstone, it is free. You know, it's one of those things where it is available on his DeviantArt. If you Google Sunstone Sedgwick free, yeah. there are five volumes of over 1,500 pages of art and story that are completely free. And you can try it, see, you can read all 15 pages and see if you like it. And if you like it enough to where you're going to buy it, you can do that too.
0: Yeah, nice. And his, I mean, his art is like absolutely top level stunning. And it has been for years. I. I was shocked that it, like, has been so long that, like, the, you know, the regular sort of mainstream comic book audience hasn't been aware of him, because, yeah. you know, especially Sunstone, but he's always done, like, those little, like, one-page, uh, you know, like, slice of life comedy Justice League things, like, he's been doing those for a long time, um, and but you always look at him, like, back when I first saw him, I was like, who is this artist, and why is he not, like, on the main, you know, Justice League, Batman, whatever, uh, and so it's interesting because now he's he's doing like a, a story arc on Aquaman, right?
1: Yeah, he's doing five issues in a single issue of Harley Quinn, but he's doing that honestly to try to to get his art to reach a bigger audience. He exactly. and I have both done a little bit of that. It's the same reason why Brian Hill is trying to do Marvel and DC work, and I've encouraged Zach Kaplan to do it too. Yeah, is because uh, there are people that are Marvel and DC, and that's kind of all they read. But if you can get them to follow you elsewhere, which is what Cedric is trying to do. Exactly. Uh, the, the thing is, he doesn't have and see i don't either and neither does really brian hill and a lot of us don't have the passion and love for these marvel and dc characters that everyone thinks everyone should yeah like yeah. i have no interest in writing any of those characters i, I really do not and uh i, I you know when i've done uh, a lot of licensed comic work but it's always just straight up work for hire and it's usually for a uh, a bigger purpose mm-hmm. um but uh I just you know, focus on developing and, and building my own content, and I can, which is why I say it, it's, it's good for me, because I know that not every writer can do that. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but no, Cedric, is, uh, he's a force of nature, and the thing that I think makes him truly unique and special is his speed. I mean, he can do four fully colored pages a day.
0: That is unreal. Wow. Yeah, that because like you look at his art and it looks like that, you know, like he looks like an artist who'd be like, oh, OK, if he's going to be on a book, you know, let's wait, you know, th- three months for him to get an issue done because it's so detailed. Uh, that's that's incredible that he can do four pages a day. Holy crap.
1: He's insanely fast. When he got sick at one point, I remember after he did Aphrodite nine to me and there was a single issue. I think it was the seventh issue that he did in two days. So he did uh, twenty four pages of store of art in two in two days. Ooh, you shit. can tell a little bit, but it's uh, it's still better than most of the other shit I see on the market. So yeah, exactly. and a part of it, we're just trying to make the trying to make the deadline. You know, so uh, no, he's amazing, and his wife is amazing, and she's the one that is doing swing with me. So I'm writing a book called Swing with My Wife. Uh, Linda Sedick, his wife, is uh, painting it. Oh,
2: so. Awesome.
1: Um, it's uh, so it falls straight into that sort of Sunstone crowd and universe because of uh, sort of the connection. And uh, they are directly connected because the characters in Sunstone uh, play this online sort of role playing game and like World of Warcraft. And uh, the characters in, in one of the characters in, in the Swing Book also plays, and they're all in the same guild.
0: <laughs> now, so that's interesting, and it kind of plays into some of the other things that you guys have done at TopCow because it seems like uh, with most of the projects that you guys do at, at TopCow. Eventually, they end up tying in with another series or another book, or kind of ending up existing in the same universe. uh talk a little about that why Why do you guys do that or or sort of what's the appeal of that to you
1: Well, uh part of that is people tend to buy comics in threes mm-hmm. uh that's been pr- proven in uh statistics. If you look at like uh, bat books and various things, people tend to buy three titles of something. And, and that's sort of trying to get someone to buy 10 of 10 different titles for some massive storyline. It's very hard, but, uh, and I've always kind of believed that where we tended, like there was Witchblade, darkness and Magdalena, you know, those were sort of the three books that connected. There was uh, think tank postal and tithe. Those three books connected, you know, there's sunstone swing and bloodstain. Those three titles connect, you know, so that's actually a very intentional, uh, that's, that's, that's not, Um, happenstance that that's on purpose you know and and we sort of develop these things out Um, and part of it is as long as it works and it's not forced because see I often remember when I first started in comics I I hadn't read a lot of comics but when I started I started reading a lot to try to educate myself and I remember reading some of the early 80s Marvel stuff and collected editions and stuff and I remember Mm. there was a really cool era of Marvel where you know, you would be reading a Spider-Man book, and Peter Parker or Spider-Man would be swinging around. He'd land on top of a roof, and then there'd be Daredevil on the corner of that building, and <laughs> Spider-Man would say, "Hey, what are you doing?" And he's yeah. like, I have, "I have no time for you now," and he would jump down, right? <laughs> and then there would be a little that says, "See Daredevil number 268. you know, and uh, and I would be like, "Oh, that's kind of cool." Or you, or you'd be in Daredevil, and you'd see him go by a magazine stand, and there'd be like a newspaper with some sort of a column about Spider-Man. Yeah. You know, sort of, sort of those subtle, non-force clues. I think the problem with Marvel and DC crossovers now is they make them too big. Yes, uh, they're they marketing events and not story events. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think when you force someone to buy like fifty issues or something, you, you're asking someone at this stage of the game to spend one hundred and fifty bucks. I mean, that's that's a commitment.
0: Yeah, you know? there was. If you're talking about. I, I thought it was interesting last summer when Marvel's Civil War Two crossover was going on, somebody did the math and it calculated to over a hundred dollars, or sorry, over a thousand dollars if you were to buy every single issue that tied into Civil War II,
1: the total was over a thousand dollars. That's crazy. And would you even want would you even want to read all that shit? Exactly. You know no, it's, I mean? ter- it's terrible. No, I, I, I it's amazing. You know, it's amazing what happens when you start getting on composts um, because I've been on Marvel and DC and dark horse and various companies complex over the years. And you'll get these large boxes of comics. And, uh, now most of them are free PDFs, but, uh, in the day it was, you'd get this large box of books. Yeah. and I I would, you know, I get all these books and I still wouldn't read them. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, there's a weird thing about, uh, you know, that I, I, it's hard to explain, but, uh, no, and that's why like, uh, to be fair, by the way, Think Tank was not intended to be part of the universe. When I did Think Tank, it was intended to just be a cathartic thing for me personally in my life, and I wanted to do it for fun. Yeah. Uh, when it sort of worked, uh, and then I did the Tithe, uh, in the middle of the Tithe, I realized I needed them to uh, talk to a military hacker, mm. someone to give them some advice. And then I'm like, oh. And at that point, I realized, oh, I can connect the Tithe to Think Tank, and then we could launch this postal book and connect them all into Eden's Fall. And yeah. So that all the wheels started turning, but it felt— it felt very organic, you know? I yeah. mean, there wasn't a lot of forced stuff. Like, if you look at uh, Tithe, Volume 2, the David Lauren character from Think Tank is in, like, two pages. <laughs> that, that, that's because that's all we needed. him. For. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and I couldn't I couldn't think of a reason to force, you know, another 20 pages of content in there with, with him in it to try to make him look cool and try to get people to go read the book. So you just use it, you know, in Samaritan, number one, which just came out last week, there's mm. another two-page scene with David Lauren in. Yeah. You know, and he's in there and, so, see, and I think I, that's I think really cool.
0: I, like, I, I actually, I enjoy that far more than I enjoy the like, oh, it's this person versus this person. Read the issue to find out. You know, like, I don't know. I, I like the uh, incidental crossovers where it makes it feel like a real sort of, you know, kin- kinetic, like, connected world, but it doesn't try and force something where there's not anything.
1: Well, and there's another book I did called Wildfire, which I was gonna include in the quote-unquote Edenverse, but then I decided not to because mm-hmm. I realized uh, in Wildfire. Uh, which is the first book I ever did with uh, Cedric's wife, Linda. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a GMO conspiracy thriller. Well, we burned down most of California. Uh. I said, "Well, if you if you, bur- if you burn down most of California, you're probably going to need to reflect that in other titles." <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, it was one of those things, right? I said, ah, "This isn't in the universe because I don't want to have to deal with that."
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and people at Marvel
1: don't have that luxury. You know, no. they don't. You know, if you're writing a book for Marvel and they, they suddenly uh, you know blow up half of New York. You have to figure out how to make that make sense. Yeah.
0: No, that's true. Uh, And I got to say, I mean, Eden's Fall is... That was one of my favorite crossovers that I've read of any comic uh, recently. And I thought that it was super awesome, just like a sort of three-issue contained story. Uh, And I, at that point, I hadn't even read the Tithe. and, And reading Eden's Fall, it was like, oh, okay, like all these characters make sense. Like there's nothing... There's nothing that's left to be desired by not necessarily knowing all three universes going, you know, into that point. Uh, but then it kind of gives you a reason to want to read, you know, any of them that you haven't read. And I don't know, it functioned really well as a story. I thought you guys really nailed it on Eden's Fall.
1: Well, thank you very much. And I think I think the difference there is, yes, we're we're doing little marketing tricks to try to get you to read something. But We're trying to get you to read something we think you're going to like anyway, you yeah. know, versus forcing you to read something that's required. You know, like my new Samaritan book, uh, you know, it's it's kind of in the middle of the story, but I write it specifically where if you've never read Think Tank, The Tithe, Postal or Eden's Fall, you could figure out what's going on fairly easily. And I explain it pretty well, I think. And I, the reviews for it have all been pretty positive about that. And I've had a lot of this where, you know, you'll, people will read Samaritan and then I'll get people on Twitter and say, oh, I really like this. You know, uh, it refers to these other books. Uh, you know, what order should I read them in? I, I love that question because that's mm. like, oh. Hey, guess what? There's twelve trades you can read. So <laughs>
0: That's awesome.
1: Um Well, all right.
0: So we're we're getting close to uh to the end here where we'll do our lightning round, but I just wanted to make sure Matt and Rachel, did you guys have any other questions that you wanted to ask before we uh before we get into the lightning round here? I think I think the lightning round's the the perfect place for it.
2: I, I do have just one thing yeah. to say really quickly. <laughs> um I've been reading postal And I've actually really enjoyed it. And I did have questions about it, but you've kind of answered it. Since you do take great care in researching and being on the spectrum myself, I just want to thank you for a very accurate portrayal of someone with Asperger's.
1: Well, you're very welcome. I, I am also on the spectrum and I, uh, cannot, um, I have a lot of issues in that growing up in the science field. It's, uh, there are a lot of things where you force yourself to learn how to talk to people. And a lot of people don't understand that, you know what yes. I mean? And, uh, <laughs> I, I uh, you know, when you have to force, Oh, I should smile here. I mean, those, those are my, my roommate in college, my freshman year, uh, was uh, heavy on the spectrum and we were both in the physics program at UCLA. And, uh, I, I think when you get into science world you realize that all these really smart people are all on the spectrum one form or another we didn't call it that back then they were just called weird you know and yes. <laughs> uh, so um, you know and I, i've I've, uh, I've been a big proponent of it and uh, it, it's uh, you know I, and I, I've, I've he used to get picked on um, and it used to bother me and he didn't really seem like he cared but it bothered me and he always asked me why I cared that people called him names when it didn't bother him and I'd be like it just bothers me, dude, and and so I mean I I got in a couple fights with people and and various things and uh, and I still maintain contact with him. He is uh, he, he is Dave Lauren, you know that guy works for Raytheon and uh, he is one of the smartest motherfuckers I've ever met. And he designed the uh, he designed the algorithm they used for the Predator drone back fifteen years ago when they first started using it to uh, target and do surveillance. And part of my conversation with him is where those stories, some of those stories, came from because he. He was told that the, the, uh, the drones were only going to be used for surveillance, and then they weaponized them, not a few years later. So, um, And that wow. kind of dual-purpose technology and things like that happen, happen all the time, and he, he worked on a program now uh, – he tells me about the stuff. He's very careful about it because he has pretty serious clearance. So once the seven-year click goes on, he and I – he'll tell me about what he did seven years ago. And, and <laughs> you know anyone on the spectrum. They remember it exactly. And so yes. <laughs> um, he was telling me uh, recently, seven years ago, they developed this gun that was a drone gun. And it was a pure drone gun. I mean I, I think I use it in Think Tank. Um, where it's essentially a sniper rifle, and it flies around as a drone, and uh, it has facial recognition, and sometimes it has an autonomous kill order. And they they use these things in Iraq and Afghanistan. They're just flying around to kill people. And uh, what they discovered they had a problem with was the recoil of a a flying weapon like that, of that size, because they needed it to be small and stealthy. So the the way they fixed that, and he fixed it, was uh, these things have these bolts where they'll go, and these sniper rifles will literally land on a rock in the desert or the land on top of a building, and it has a little class that'll bolt it to the to the wherever it at to, to eliminate any of the recoil so that it's Holy more accurate. And uh, they have a version of this that you can see on YouTube where it's uh, it's it's a it's not a sniper rifle. It's actually a high-speed uh, machine gun where they'll land these things out on some some rock in Afghanistan, right? And they'll put it on fully auto, and they'll just put it for any movement. Anything that moves, it's, it's eviscerated. And uh, uh, these... These things are used uh, pretty regularly right now, um, and I was since, – since it's always about seven years behind, I'm always kind of fascinated by where it's at now. Where I've gotten in trouble twice actually and had a couple talks with the FBI and Homeland Security is when uh, <laughs> I, I have guessed accurately as to where things would be going. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So uh, that was the the worst. Was uh, I don't know if you remember when in well, whether or not you've read Think Tank, but in the first volume of Think Tank, I used this thing with three D printers. Oh yeah. About three D printers, uh, printing out surveillance flies mm-hmm. that would be used for surveillance, and uh, mm-hmm. that apparently hit that that was again that was six six seven years ago. That hit a little close to the mark of something a few years uh, a few years ago, and I, I got in a little bit of uh, trouble for that. Jeez. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, but no, I. I Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I can't tell you how often uh, I get people to come up to me at the booth. and like I, I recognize them immediately, you know, it's like a, <laughs> and it's just a, I was. And uh, you know, I, I actually carry a couple things around because I'm always amazed at uh, how people don't know how to deal with people on the spectrum. And I, I have one of those things my son gave me those little, those little spinny gadget things you have in your hand. Oh yeah. You know oh
2: about? yeah. I, I have the little square one because it has like knobs and stuff that that's helped me so much.
1: <laughs> I, I have uh, I buy I buy those by the case, and whenever I see someone <laughs> that's on the spectrum that's having issues, I'll just give them one, and they calm down immediately.
2: That's yeah, funny. it's incredible.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, it's just, you know, you see these people that don't know how to deal with it. You know, sometimes it's parents. I, I, I've i talked to parents because uh, I'm not so heavily on the spectrum to where it's it's obvious to people unless I, I tell them. You know, my, my thing is I'm more dyslexic than anything. I have a really hard time uh, reading numbers, which is weird that I I was in a math person. But uh, I would go, like in hotels even today, I'll go to a hotel anywhere I'm staying. And I have to take a photograph of the fucking number because I'll, I'll go to 381 instead of 318 or 323 <laughs> instead of 332. <laughs> No, I'll do that. And I'll go and I'll stick my thing in and I'll try to open the door. And of course there's always someone in there when I'm doing that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I you learn little tricks of the trade that get you through life. Uh, and uh, yes. yeah. You know, and, and I'm I'm amazed at uh how many people on the spectrum are just so so much smarter in certain aspects of things and then people people think they're stupid when they're actually superior. That's interesting.
2: I, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um. All right. Well. So let's uh,
0: let's kick off the lightning round. We'll just ask you a bunch of you know kind of little quick fire uh, nonsense questions that we come up with. Uh, Matt Hockett, why don't you go ahead and start? Uh, okay. Uh, harp Harp Technology up in Alaska. The the Harp installation up in Alaska. Uh,
3: global 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 apocalypse or uh, or
1: not? I'm afraid I don't know what that is. Oh, so the, uh, so up in Alaska,
3: there's like the, the Harp satellite array where they send out electromagnetic bursts where, you know, there's the whole, con- there's a whole giant conspiracy where people think that they're going to shoot these bursts. that's going to rip our atmosphere in half. And, and that's that for earth. Uh, and, or it has the capability of inciting, uh, s- specific localized weather patterns, uh, oh, anywhere, I,
1: anywhere on the globe. I'm looking it up now. High frequency active oral research. Oh, okay. Uh yeah yeah i, I have I, I don't have much knowledge of this so I, I don't really know, although I will tell you that uh, I, I have been shocked how many scientists have not really known what their research was going to do sure. um, and uh, it's it, so it's entirely possible that that could doom us all who knows <laughs>
0: <laughs> fair enough uh rachel uh, i'm still working okay. on it <laughs> no worries uh, what was the first comic you read matt
1: well the one uh, the first one I can remember is probably a uh, Uncle Scrooge or Daffy Duck or, or one of those when I was a kid. We uh-huh. used to uh, – there would be like Mad Libs and stuff at 7-Eleven, and my mom would buy it when we would drive from Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri to Wichita where her parents lived, and uh, they would give me stuff in the car to shut me up. And I remember I remember uh, Uncle Scrooge and, and stuff like that. I never really read Archie or any superhero stuff, uh, but those are the first comics I ever remember reading. Uh, when I got into comics professionally, uh, the first thing I remember reading that I actually liked was V for Vendetta.
0: mm Nice. Right on. That's a good choice. Seems like it'd be right up your alley. Yeah. Hockett, uh, go ahead. Uh, all right. I like to do music and uh,
3: comic pairings. So, what's the uh, soundtrack to the, the the tithe?
1: Oh wow! Uh, Arctic Monkeys. Mm. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I love nice. Arctic Monkeys, and uh, I it, that, that actually you know you're, you're funny by saying that is that stuff's easy for me to do because I write so many different things. I actually do match music to, to projects. So when yeah. I'm writing different things, I write with different things. Like uh, think Tank is always Beethoven's Ninth, you That's know. Funny. So it's uh, it's really uh, interesting. You know, when I was writing After Nine, I used to listen to EDM, you know, and I'd listen to like Skrillex and shit. And uh, yeah. so it's like I would try different stuff to put my mind in a different mode. So yeah, but yeah, I love that. Uh, what's the song called? The uh, <sighs> something now or something. It's a real sexy song. I like it. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs>
2: Um, what's your biggest distraction while writing? Uh, the internet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, no, you know, when I wrote Lady Pendragon, uh, in 97, there really wasn't an internet. And, uh, you know, I remember I did the research for that in two years. It took me two years to do the research for that. Uh, and I actually went to England and, and, and researched places and took photographs for reference and crazy shit that I could do in two days now on the internet. Um, but, uh, the internet is a crazy rabbit hole for me. Uh, between social media and just research, I find sometimes I get, I just get lost, you know, and I'll go down, like I'll. Like he, he just mentioned harp. You just ruined the rest of my day, dude. Um, I'm going <laughs> to uh, figure yeah. out cause I, I, I hate it when people, I, it's just, I hate it when people ask me stuff and I don't know what it is. And so oh. now I'm going to spend the rest of the day reading about this shit. So, um,
3: oh, now we'll need a, we a follow up. I gotta, I gotta hear your opinion. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there you go. But, uh, so that's, that's, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where I, it, it's one of my philosophies on, on writing is, uh, I, I like to write what I want to know, not what I know, hmm. because then the research, then the research is fun for me. Yeah. So. Right on. If you're always writing what you know, then uh, he's regurgitating shit in your head. I would rather learn something. Yeah. Yeah,
0: That's a good philosophy.
1: But I find find the internet very distracting. I find my cats and dog very distracting. I find my wife distracting. I find video games distracting. (laughs) My son's distracting. Food distracting. You know, I mean, everything is distracting. (laughs) (laughs) I can only focus for about 90 minutes at a time. So I try to do two, maybe three 90-minute writing sessions a day. That's fair.
2: Nice.
0: Um. Who's your favorite writer of all time, any medium?
1: Oh my God, uh, Arthur C. Clarke. Mm,
0: yes, stuff. the best.
1: <laughs> and Childhood's End, probably uh, my favorite, which yeah. is uh, actually a you could read that book in an hour. You know, it's uh, it, it's it's Arthur C. Clarke was uh, you know, he's inspired an entire generation of scientists and engineers to develop and build things that we use now: satellites, uh, GPS. You know, all this sort of stuff uh, he developed in his storylines that he was the first person to ever even use it. You know, uh, the use of Lagrange points uh, to stabilize sort of orbital transitions and stuff like that. I mean, all that sort of stuff that is so common to what we do now is is uh, stuff that he introduced to all of us in his novels. So and he's most famously known for 2001, obviously. Yeah. Uh, But uh, he he wrote a a bunch of books and that. there's a, there's a line in uh, Childhood's End, which I just watched the uh, part of the TV series with my wife, and we had to stop because it sucked so bad. But I
3: I, I I did the same thing. It was unbearable to watch that show.
1: They just added stupid stuff. No, they changed it, it all. Yeah. I,
3: yeah. Oh, it was so frustrating.
1: So, but uh, And I, I won't get this line correct because it's been a while since I read it. But it was something along the lines that the Overlords released a video that they'd taken of the, our – Society and Earth for the last ten thousand years, and within twenty four hours, all religions went away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was such a powerful line. I read that I was like an eight year old kid, you know, and I'm like, oh shit, that's amazing. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, but no, so Arthur C. Clarke. I'm a big Isaac Asimov fan. um You know, I, I love Michael Crichton. Uh, mm. I think he's a little more like the commercialized guy. Um, yeah, if I if I if there was a writer who I aspired to write, like, the most, it would probably be him, Crichton, um, but, uh, you know, I, 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 read a lot, and I read, I, I constantly try to read things from people that uh, I don't know, like, I'm reading, I, I, just read one of Ken Liu's books, uh, Grace of Kings, oh, and, yeah. uh, it's interesting to, to, to read stuff, uh, from different perspectives, and Chinese mythology is something I didn't really know anything about, hmm. um, so, there's, uh, there's always something. My wife reads a lot, and she and I have uh, – we have an off-again, on-again book club where we'll pick a book that we'll both read, and then we'll talk about it. That's cool. Nice.
0: Uh, any other questions from you, Matt? Uh, sure. Uh, did you
3: read the uh, the Rendezvous with Rama sequels, the three sequels?
1: I did at some point. I don't remember what they're all called, but I read uh, – I've read everything he's ever written.
3: Yeah, yeah. Did you like them? I'm just – just because I, nobody – I haven't read – I haven't – I have a, a not science fiction group of friends. So did you like him? Did you, do you remember liking them? I, I, I don't. Yeah.
1: I do remember liking them. I remember them not being my favorite of his work. Um, Cause
3: he, he did them with uh what's the other guy who was working? Gentry Lee or gentry. Yeah, it wasn't just him anyway. Yeah. Just curious.
1: Well, anytime you have a book where you have a a known author and his name is, you know, four inches on the title and then there's a second name that's like a quarter of an inch, then, you know, the the guy with the bigger name didn't actually write it. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Rachel, you got anything else?
2: Uh, What movie scared you as a child? Mm.
1: Uh, Alien, Jaws, Cujo. Uh, Those are the ones that scared me when I was a child. Alien scared me a lot because I was seven when I saw it in the theater. Yeah. Jaws, I was eight or nine. I don't remember when that came out. I might have the order reversed there, but I saw those in the theater, and those are movies that we hadn't seen anything in life. What, what scares me now are movies like Hostel and Saw. And,
2: oh, yeah. Same here. And
1: the reason being is because I know there's fucked up people out there like that, and that's possible, you know, versus like Freddy versus Jason. I know it's just bullshit, and, uh, you know, that's not going to happen. So it's <laughs> like – I, I, no, I'm just – so stuff where I look at, you know, especially Hostel 1, that, that movie – haunted me for a really long time you know i'm not really i'm not a big believer in the paranormal and all that stuff so none of that stuff really affects me but the uh hostile one the idea that there's this fucked up group of people in eastern europe that that are basically selling the rights to go kill people i I believe somewhere in the world that's happening oh totally yeah that's that's scary you know so i believe in monsters but monsters are just people yeah
2: Mm. yes i agree
0: well, all right. Uh, I think that's uh, about does it for this episode. Thank you so much, Matt. You've been very generous with your time. Uh, let everyone know where they can find you on social media.
1: Uh, I'm on Facebook. It's self-loathing narcissist. Um, if you just put, I know that's a lot, uh, but if you just put Matt Hawkins, um, it usually pops up me or the South uh, African rugby player. I'm not the buff-looking blonde guy with all the tats. That's not me. So, so I'm the guy. I'm the guy with the comic shit behind him. There you go. So, uh, That and I'm on Twitter. I'm at TopCowMatt. What probably easier is just to follow the TopCow feeds. TopCow has Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, all those things. Mm -hmm. And if you follow those feeds, you're going to see my name on there anyway in my feeds. You can catch me that way. But I I, probably I'm on Twitter a lot, but I'm on Facebook the most because I I tend to not be able to constrain myself to that character count on Twitter.
0: Of course. Mm uh so, yeah and your your facebook is very entertaining i will say and there's always a very interesting discussion going on in your facebook i enjoy that quite a lot
1: Well, thanks man and i've worked actually very hard to try to keep it civil and yeah. part of that's just blocking assholes but uh, <laughs> i i even the people that are somewhat verbose on other people's feeds keep it civil on mine because i've warned them enough times and they don't want to be blocked yeah. so um but it's, and I, I try to keep it with different perspectives cause, uh, I go through life always trying to just assume that I'm not correct. And I think that's the right way to su- to go through life, but mm. uh, that's not the way most people do it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, for all the comics, you can uh, you can find Think Tank. Animal is currently in single issues. You can also find all the trades of Think Tank uh, in stores, as well as Postal. Uh, Eden's Fall is now in trade. Uh, Eclipse, Romulus, you can, you know, all of Matt's work. The Tithe and uh, Samaritan just launched issue one and then you can find Golgotha on Kickstarter?
1: Uh, well, the Kickstarter's done. It'll okay. be out in uh, in other venues in October. So the Kickstarter people will get it next month, but everyone else will be able to buy it in October. And then I did uh, four volumes of After 99 with Cedric, mm. and I'm doing a new book called uh, Swing with my wife and Linda Cedric, which will be out next Valentine's Day. Oh, cool. Uh, I'm working on a new book called The Clock with Colleen Doran, and I'm working on another book called Stairway with Raphael Ayanco, who did the two volumes of Symmetry with me
0: damn you've got you have got a uh, a, a great writing ethic you, you've got a great output i love it
1: uh, i just yeah get up every day and write four hours that's how that's how it happens that's all it takes
0: <laughs> that's awesome man uh and then uh for the top cow talent hunt i know we have a lot of artists and a lot of writers who listen to the show where can they go to uh submit to the talent hunt
1: well, the uh, the rules for the town hunt we did in conjunction with comicbookresources. dot com. So if you go, there's actually a link at cbr.com dot com where you can download the rules. Uh, there's a four or five page PDF that I wrote that you can read that has the answers to pretty much every question you could have. And I would encourage artists and writers to please fucking read that because you have no <laughs> idea how irritating it is for people to ask me questions that are answered in that document, especially if you're looking for a job. You know? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so. You know, it's different when it's fans that are trying to read stuff where you're buying. I'm always very uh, supportive of trying to help them figure stuff out. But if you're trying to find a fucking job, you need to read the rules. Yep. Um, and, uh, no, that's, you know, the guy, Isaac Goodhart, who draws Postal. You know, a lot of uh, artists and writers that are in comics today, Teeny Howard. You know, a lot of these people came from our Top Cow talent hunt.
0: Absolutely. So we continue
1: to bring, to bring new, uh, new creative talent into the industry, and uh, we will continue to do so. So I encourage uh, people to check it out.
0: Right on. Nice. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining the show today. It's been a great discussion, and uh, hopefully we can have you on at some point again to uh, talk about some of the stuff that's coming out in the future.
3: Yeah, thank
1: Any, you. Anytime. I, I've had a good time. I'm sorry I, I over-talked you guys so much. It's just there's a hell bit no. of a lag, so sorry about that. No,
0: hell no. Yeah, it's, that's great. Yeah, our voices are much less important on the interviews than yours.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. But thank you so much. And yeah. uh, I look. let me know when it goes up, and I'll uh, I'll tweet it out on all our feeds.
0: Awesome. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That sounds great.
1: Okay, thanks, guys. Yep. Cheers.
0: Cheers. Take care. Bye. All right. Uh, we did? Go for it, Jay. I know. I was about to. I was just going to give it like oh. a little silence so I could mark it easy.
2: <laughs> you ruined it.
0: <laughs> ruined. And that was Matt Hawkins, the uh, COO of Top Cow Productions, and many, many other uh, other things. Writer of all sorts of stuff. Uh, guys, would you? Uh, Think of the interview, and what you think of the comics that you read uh, for research there. Um, uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it was uh, that was a great interview. There was i a... I'm
3: trying to. Uh, no, it was great. I you, I, I really appreciate uh, his candor, and I really liked. Uh, I don't know. It's fun. It's fun hearing about all sorts of all the sort of like research and science stuff that goes into all the stuff he's writing. I think that's awesome. That's that's definitely a. Something I'm interested in. So it's uh, when he mentioned that in the back of his books, he has all the sort of references and all that kind of stuff. I that is super appealing to me. I think that's such a great way to write a comic. So then you can get educated. Yeah, more. yeah
2: I I agree, and I like his approach that even if he gets it wrong, he'll correct himself. Totally, and it, especially you know when I watch military stuff with Cap, if it's wrong, he just like points out everything that's wrong and gets upset (laughs) so i'm glad that he actually does take you know the care in getting everything he possibly can correct
0: yeah yeah no he's he's got a great approach i i uh i admire a lot of that guy's work ethic especially like it's it's mind-blowing to me uh that he you know like you said he didn't grow up reading comics and basically as an adult after already being in college uh started reading comics after he was looking to find a job in comics you know what i mean like that's interesting yeah um but yeah so i i read uh this last week in prep for both the brian hill interview and for matt hawkins i read um think tank eden's fall and postal um and and romulus as well uh but as far as uh as far as the ones that matt has uh, his hand in writing um, I thought think Tank was super awesome. I had read the first volume uh back like when it first came out, however long ago that was like four or five years ago um, yeah
3: I, I read it I read it a couple of years back too, and I remember liking it but i it i don't really remember what it's about
0: yeah it's it's really cool I mean just seeing the uh you know sort of the inner workings of darPA and how like you know how scientists are kind of manipulated into doing these things and just this you know bleeding edge technology and then obviously just having a story framed around it uh that's i don't know just so in-depth and fun and kind of a rush to read um i loved it eden's fall like i said i really do think that that's one of the best like the the best executed crossovers in comics in a long time just three issues you know crossing over three series a perfectly well executed story with a beginning middle and end um i would absolutely recommend anybody pick that up uh, in trade because it's it's easy to jump onto if even if you don't know any of the characters
2: Okay. Yeah. That that was just my next question was do you have to read everything else to know what's going on or yeah. is it explained?
0: No, that that was the the best part. They literally at the beginning of Eden's Fall, there's two pages and that's all it takes to just set up everything you need to know. Um it explains the setting nice. and it explains all the characters in two pages super efficiently. Uh I loved it. Nice. Yeah. Yeah,
3: yeah, I, I enjoyed reading the tithe. I thought that was it was uh it was kind of a cool take on the the whole like sort of mega churches with the Robin Hood mythos kind of going on. That was pretty cool. Yeah, the little V for Vendetta kind of like uh, Guy Fox mask thing going on in that comic too.
0: Oh yeah, they have like a Jesus mask in there, don't they?
3: Yes, yeah, yeah, it's a Jesus mask with the crown of <laughs> thorns. Yeah. Wow,
0: yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty good. I, I, it was fun to read.
2: Great. Yep. I don't know if Matt had more.
1: No, Uh, I don't.
2: I I read Think Tank and Postal, and I think Postal is my favorite just because it is a little more supernatural and, you know, obviously relating with a character that because he sees things differently, you know, his like detective skills are different. Yeah. And, yeah, that just really appeals to me. But, obviously, the gods and demons shit is pretty cool.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I and I love the setting of of Postal. I think it's really fascinating just having, like, this town that's, like, a safe haven for criminals. Yeah. Um, it's, I don't know, it's, it's such a fascinating uh, sort of just a, a setting and a foundation for a story because there's so much that you can do with that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was I was bummed that you guys uh weren't able to make it for the Brian Hill interview, that was that was a fun time. I think uh think you would have liked him. And he's uh we talked about it already, he'll be coming on the show again. Uh we wanted to do kind of an interview that's about the craft of creating comics. Mm. Um and so and I've actually been thinking I might I might try and see if we can get like uh him, Zach Kaplan and uh Matt Hawkins kind of get the three sort of main writers at Top Cow all together and uh kind of have a panel about it but We'll see. But yeah, so Brian Hill will be coming on again. Nice. nice. Um, yeah, that was a fun interview. And that, that's actually, it's kind of funny. It'll be Monday. As, as you're hearing this, uh, this comes out Thursday. The Brian Hill interview came out Monday. So it's kind of like the uh, the top cow week here on the Savage Land. There you go. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, uh, that's about it. Let's see. I don't think we had any new reviews since last week. Uh, was there anything that we wanted to, to touch on before we send it off?
3: Uh, you know, we did get an email one sec. Oh, we got an email. Yep, we did. We got a response from Madeline. Oh, that's right. Uh Madeline says the apostrophe S was unintentional and she finds all of us entertaining and enjoyable.
0: And if uh <laughs> yeah, so if, if,
2: <laughs> if We're not
0: annoying, guys. If Yay. you didn't if you didn't listen to our uh Star Trek episode from a couple episodes ago, we had a review that uh uh, from from Madeline who's a great artist uh, you can follow her art underscore by M-A-D-E-L-Y-N uh, sh- she left us a review that said uh, Jason's voice isn't all that's annoying uh, referring to a one star review we got where they were complaining about my voice being annoying so that's good that uh, she clarified to say she didn't mean it's all that's annoying that it's not all that annoying so take that guys
2: yeah, yeah. my voice we isn't that annoying for nothing. <laughs>
0: Uh, but if you want to be like Madeline and help us uh, help us not cry into our pillows every night, uh, you can leave us a review on iTunes, uh, whatever stars you think are appropriate. Obviously, we love five stars, but you can you can be the judge of how many stars we deserve. Uh, but we just love those reviews. And if you would like to uh, talk to us, have any questions or feedback on any of the episodes we record, you can send uh, emails to letters at savagelandpodcast dot com. Uh. Our upcoming guests, if you have any questions for them, we uh, have in the forthcoming weeks, we have Andrew McLean, the creator of uh, Headlopper, Apocalyptic Girl, um, a bunch of other things. Uh, We have David Walker coming on the show, who is the writer of Luke Cage, Power Man and Iron Fist. Uh, He wrote Cyborg for a while. He writes uh, Badass Mofo, a bunch of other stuff. Um, I don't know. We got got all sorts of other people coming on. Just send us, if you have any questions for them, send us uh, emails, letters at savagelandpodcast.com, and we will ask your questions. Uh, Is there anything... Oh, and uh, follow us on Twitter. uh, That's at savagelandpod, and Facebook and Instagram at savagelandpodcast. I think that's it. Did we cover all our bases, guys? Did we do it? I think you got it. Yeah. I think you did it. Good you job. You did buddy. it. Hooray. I did it. Uh, well, then this lengthy episode will come to a close. Uh, and I still don't have a, a, a phrase tagline. Yeah, it's because we already have one. It's later, Skater. <sighs> <laughs>